to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard the sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they, so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled the pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. When, even when they cast for themselves the image of a calf and said, This is your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. <coughs> Hi, I'm Becky. I'm doing a second Bible reading. Um, we're doing Romans 7, verse 7 to 25, and you can find that on page 1117. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. When I was alive apart from law, once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, 
but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Good evening again, everybody. Um, We are continuing our our sermon series in Romans. Uh, In that that passage that was just read, I hope you'll keep it open. Let's pray as we come again to God's word. Father, please breathe the life of Jesus into us by your Holy Spirit as we listen to your word Give us the faith to respond. In, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I won't beat around the bush. The passage before us today, this evening, is really difficult. Uh, it's one of those parts of the Bible that people have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled over. And we are in for a wrestle this evening. Some of the difficulty, though, may be our own fault. What happens is this. We read that bit in verses 18 to 20 about how I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And we relate to it. We think, yes, that's, that's kind of what I experience. That's me. Now, as we'll see, there is something really important in this. But I want us to slow down. Because I believe that if that is our starting point, that this passage is about us, and as many of us here are Christians, that means this passage is about Christians, if that's our starting point, then we will badly distort this passage and miss the key things that Paul actually wants to get across. Paul's interest in this passage is not mainly in describing the Christian life. Rather, his interest is primarily in a question that was very pressing for him and for some of his readers, but that we easily pass over. The question that the passage actually begins with in verse 7 and that it comes back to. What's the question? It's there, verse 7. Is the law sin? Is the law, that is, something evil? Uh, Now, that question probably feels a bit distant from you. It was a bit of an odd question to us, but I want to urge you to try and follow Paul's answer through, because in answering it, Paul shows us some very deep and important things about 
the reality of sin. Things that are actually profoundly relevant and challenging for our own day. For what Paul's discussion of the law and sin here shows us, in the end, is why knowledge of what is good is not enough to save us. I'll say that again. What it shows us is why knowledge of what is good is not enough to save us. This passage shatters pretensions that our world and we ourselves easily have and flatter ourselves with. So can I invite you to come with me as we take this journey? There's an outline in the things you got handed out at the beginning. Um, And we'll begin point one by glancing back at the story so far, how this theme has unfolded so far in Romans. Uh, We're going to look at three verses that show us this theme. First, look back with me, if you've got a Bible there, actually look back with me, at chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20, just a couple of pages back. Um, Chapter 3, verse 20 is the, the conclusion of the long and difficult argument that runs through the first three chapters of Romans. If you are here with us last year, we, we, un, we unpacked it in some detail. And it runs through that argument to the terrible conclusion that, in fact, all people, both Gentiles and Jews, irreligious people and religious people, all people are sinners against God. And part of what that conclusion entails, says Paul, is that, verse 20, chapter 3, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, and here's the the crazy little punch he puts in, rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, that is just a hint of the theme we see climax in our passage. The law does not, in fact, lead to justification. Rather, somehow, it leads to sin. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. Okay, what does that mean? Well, actually, at chapter 3, we're left wondering, and Paul holds off. He gives another hint, though, in chapter 4, verse 15. Just look over the page. Next chapter, chapter 4, verse 15. In the course of his discussion about how Abraham was justified by faith, not by obeying the law, Paul makes the offhand comment we see there. Law brings wrath, he says. Law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, again, he seems to be saying the law doesn't actually save people. In fact, the opposite. It brings about wrath. God's wrath, that is. In fact, he even says that in some way, it's only because of the law that there is sin. That's a perplexing comment, isn't it? Again, though, he holds off explaining this fully. We get another hint in the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago in chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20, next page or wherever. In his discussion there about the differences between Adam and Christ, about the reigns of sin and of righteousness and grace, Paul says, chapter 5, verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. Did you catch that? So that... The purpose of the law, somehow, seems to be to do with sin, with drawing it out, with intensifying it. Now, we find this theme a bit perplexing. 
What we need to think about also, though, is that to a Jew, this theme was not just perplexing, it was extremely confronting and really offensive. Paul himself, of course, was a Jew. It's not an anti-Semitic letter, actually the opposite. But he is saying something here that is deeply disturbing for Judaism. He seems to be saying that the law... God's great gift to Israel is actually about sin. And it's that that leads to the question in our passage in verse 7. You can see that now, right? This is where this this question has come from. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Finally, the tension of this theme running in the letter can no longer be avoided. What are you saying, Paul? That the law is a bad thing? This question, which can seem strange to us, was actually intensely urgent for both Paul and for his readers. Was Paul saying that the law was evil? It was a pressing issue both theoretically and practically and pastorally. Theoretically, it, it, went, it was a question that went to the heart of the relationship between Christianity and Judaism, of Jesus to the God of the Old Testament. Was Paul saying that, was he saying no to the work of God in the life of Israel? Is that what he was doing here? But it was also a pressing pastoral question. For of course the issue of the law and the ongoing place of things like circumcision and the food laws, that was actually the most difficult issue in the life of the early church. So there's this pressing question. What, what, what are you saying about the law, Paul? Are you saying that, you know, we Jews should just kind of forget about all of that stuff? Now, given the urgency and difficulty of this question, perhaps it won't now surprise us that Paul's answer is, well, it's complicated. Well, it's a bit complicated, he says. But that's not the first thing he says. The first thing he says is simple. Verse 7 there, he says, no way. Is the law sin? By no means. Paul is not denying the goodness of God to Israel. No way. But, he goes on, but there is some more to say. Verse 7 continues, uh, the word indeed in our version in the Greek is literally just but. I don't know why they did it with indeed in other translations, it's but. Verse 7 continues, but I would, have, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. The law is not sin, but the law does make me know sin. Paul explains further by an example. Have a look at it there. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet. Verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every every kind of covetous desire. Knowledge of the commandment, you see, actually produces sin. Therefore, although the law is not sin, we can say, actually, as Paul concludes, apart from the law, sin is dead. Okay, now so far he's unpacking, I think, the comments he made earlier, but now he starts to expand upon them. What makes this bit tricky from verse 9 on is that he speaks in the first person singular. He speaks as I. 
But he's clearly still speaking about more than just his own experience. He's plainly trying to describe and explain wider questions than that. He's trying to explain the relationship between sin and the law. As we read this, therefore, the best thing to have in mind is that Paul is not just speaking about himself, but he's speaking kind of on behalf of humanity under the law. He's speaking on behalf of human beings as they experience the law. And that means that this bit is especially about Jewish experience. Okay, verse 9. Once I was alive, follow it with me. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. This is an experience anyone can have when they first hear a commandment, but it is also, and I think this is Paul's main point, it's also the experience of humanity as a whole and of Israel in particular. The commandment which came to Adam and Eve and which promised life in the garden, you may eat of any tree but this one. It actually, that commandment actually aroused in them illicit desires that led to death. Likewise, for Israel in the Old Testament, the experience of receiving God's law on Mount Sinai, wonderful though it was, in fact ended up opening up horrible new forms of sinfulness. This experience is only possible, however, if the law itself is good. That's the paradox here, you see. That that experience can only happen if the law in itself is good. And that's why Paul concludes in verse 12 there. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. If it wasn't, it couldn't have shown you what sin was. Okay, let's pause here and draw out the significance of this point a bit. The law cannot save us. But that doesn't mean it isn't good. Christian attitudes to the Old Testament law very often forget one or other side of that. On the one hand, we can remember that the law is good, but forget that it cannot save us. That leads, remembering that it's good, but forgetting that it can't save us, that leads to legalism and moralism, where all the weight of our attention and devotion starts to go onto the commandments God has given and what it means to obey them. And we start getting paranoid about the details of obedience and disobedience. And our vision for life gets narrowed down to the question, what exactly does it say? What exactly must we do? On the other hand, however, we can remember that the law cannot save us, but forget that it is actually good. Do you see what I'm saying? And this is the mistake of what's called antinomianism or anti-lawism. The attitude that just says um, we can completely disregard the law and and, and, and indeed any kind of commandments. Uh, We don't have to worry about them. They're irrelevant for Christians. But that's a mistake too. Because the law is good. It is a gift that we are not to disregard. Now, what that means in practice, happily for me, because it's complicated, we don't have time for. Uh, but if you'd like to think more about it, 
can I recommend you go back and listen to our sermons from our series on Exodus, where we talked about the law, particularly the sermon on Exodus 21 to 24. Okay, back to the passage. We're up to verse 13. The conclusion in verse 12, now it, it provokes a change in the question, a modification. Verse 13, okay, so did that which is good then become death to me? Right, you're saying the law's good. Okay, so did that which is good become death to me? Now, surely the answer to that is yes. But again, Paul says, no. In fact, he sees it's, it, we've got to be more nuanced than that. Everything hinges on being more nuanced than that. So he says, by no means. By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what is good so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful okay now if you looked at that there verse 13 that is a dense sentence right so let's unpack it a little bit Paul's point is that it is not even the case that the law worked death that the law's effect was death right it's not even the law's fault yes the result of the law was death okay yes That's what happened. Death came through the law, but it wasn't the law's fault. It wasn't the law that made it happen. No, it was sin. Sin is the subject here. Sin produced death through what is good. And in doing so, and this, Paul says, was in fact the the whole point all along, in doing so, sin showed itself for what it was, it disclosed its true nature. Through the commandment, sin became utterly sinful. Sin reached its full and complete expression. There are two ideas there that are extremely significant. The first is that somehow sin has a life of its own. We saw something of this already in verse 8 there, where Paul wrote that sin seized an opportunity. Sin is an active subject somehow. We've also seen it earlier in Romans. In chapter 5, verse 12, for example, Paul wrote that sin entered the world. It's important to note this point, right? That is not just a figure of speech. In the Bible, sin and evil have a kind of life of their own. They cannot, of course, exist on their own. Sin can only live, as it were, as a kind of parasite upon what is real and good. Yet sin does have a kind of existence in its own right. It is almost like a virus staying alive by putting living hosts to death. And it is sin that is the ultimate culprit here. It is sin not the law, and in fact, as we'll see, not even individuals, not even the I. It is sin that produces death. Okay, that's the first significant idea. The second one is that it required the law to disclose the reality of sin. Right? The law was needed to show sin for what it was, like Like rats living under a house unseen, sin had lived below the surface, unacknowledged, unappreciated. And it needed the law to kind of flush it out, so to speak. But in doing so, the law showed the true extent of the problem. 
Um, if I can use another medical illustration, this one I think is a bit actually medically dubious. Uh, there are doctors here, they can pick up whether this is true, but you'll get the point, okay? Are there doctors? Put your hand up if you're a doctor. Come on, there's got to be some of us here. They're all the way. All right, this is good. If I can use an illustration, the law was like an antibiotic that not only fails to, to kill an infection, but also in the process of using it, makes it more difficult to dislodge. Kind of strengthens it somehow. Uh, the law, you see, it's good in itself. It's just that its purpose was not ultimately to remove sin, but to force it out into the open. Okay. How did, it, how did it do that? What does that actually look like? It's all very well to speak about viruses and antibiotics, and, but what does that actually mean when we're talking about sin? Well, that, I believe, is what Paul is trying to explain in verses 14 to 25. Have a look at them. These are the most difficult verses. He's describing how the law serves to show up and draw out the dark heart of sin. And again, he does this by speaking in the first person. He begins with a statement of the problem. The problem is that the law opens up a gulf between my ability to know what is good, to perceive what is good, and my ability to do it. The law opens up a gap within me. Let's see it there. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Uh, now, just as a side point, there is an unfortunate translation issue here. Paul uses a key word in this discussion, and the word is flesh. It's the word translated there, unspiritual. Unspiritual is, I am of the flesh. Um, it's, uh, it's translated that way, though, because it, flesh, in Paul's use, it, it doesn't just mean physical. Right? It means what is purely worldly and devoid of God's presence. When Paul says there, I am of the flesh, he's saying, I am without God. I am merely human. The problem is, though, that in our translation, the word is not translated consistently. So if you look down in verse 18, and then again in verse 25, there's that phrase, sinful nature. Uh, and it's the word flesh again. Okay? I mention this because it will come up again next week as well. Okay? Aside, finished. The law is of God, Paul's saying. We know that the law is spiritual. The law is of God, right? But I am not. I am of the flesh. Sold as a slave to sin. That is really strong language. And it's one of the main reasons I think it's a big mistake to read this passage as a description of Christian identity. Paul has just spent chapters 5 and 6 explaining that Christians are no longer slaves to sin. And in the next chapter, he will say explicitly, you are not in the flesh. So I find it incomprehensible that he would derail his argument so completely by saying that Christians are of the flesh and sold to sin. Okay, so if it's not Christians, well, who is he describing? Who is this I? Well, again, I think it's similar to what we saw above. 
He's reflecting on his own experience, but his interest is not in his experience as such, but as representative of humanity under law. He's talking about people under the law, and that means he's especially talking to Jews. And what he says is that the experience of being under law, of knowing the law, it actually turns out to be an experience of being divided against oneself. It's a terrifying and desperate experience of one's ideals and actions being at war. Let's read it again from verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Knowledge of what is right simply does not enable me to do right. Rather, it highlights the failure that I had previously been able to keep secret. In the process, though, the law is shown to be itself good, verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. But what the good law does is to expose the awful awful truth about me. That sin has taken hold in me and wrenched from me the ability to live by my beliefs. So much so that, in a sense, I have lost control of myself. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. The horrible truth that the law reveals is that my moral agency, my capacity to act properly as a human being, has been hijacked. I'm not in the driver's seat anymore. Sin has come into the very center of my being and broken the link between my ideals, my convictions, and my ability to put them into practice. So although I can still see the good, I can still acknowledge it, I can't do it. My ability to put into practice what I believe has been corrupted so that I see myself continually doing what I don't believe in. And the result is a horrible conflict within one's own existence. Verse 21, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. The pun on the word law in verse 21 there shows the horrible irony. What the good law of God does ultimately is show me that I am captive to another law a law of conflict within myself, of frustration and failure, a law of sin. People sometimes see the conflict described here positively as a kind of moral struggle. 
The trouble with that reading, though, is that Paul's point is that the conflict itself is the problem. The conflict itself is the problem. What is described here is not a struggle against sin. No, what's described here is the way in which sin rules the human heart by dividing it against itself. This is what it is to be a slave to sin. For sin to have captured you so that the connection between what you believe and what you do is broken. The battle is the problem. When I am in a hopeless war within myself so that my mind is tortured by its inability to connect with my actions, sin has won. That's why Paul concludes by crying out in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The law doesn't work. Not because it's not good. It is good. But because the problem of sin is much worse than we imagine. Knowledge is not enough to get us out of the problem. Knowing what is right and good, being enlightened, cannot save us. Again, not because it is not good to know things and be enlightened and to seek the truth and to learn those things are good, but because sin is a more intractable, deep problem than that. For what happens in human beings, you see, is that the knowledge of what is right and good doesn't get rid of sin. No, it convulses sin into an even more sinister shape and reveals the true extent of its hold upon us. What the truth draws out of us is not righteousness, but knowing wickedness. Conscious evil. Rejection of the good with our eyes open. This is a profoundly significant point for us to grasp today. Because it is the deep reason for the persistent and terrible reality of hypocrisy in human life. Of those who know better doing worse. Hypocrisy, and especially religious hypocrisy, has been and is such a terrible scourge on our world. People are appalled by the things that have emerged in the last two decades and more about abuse within churches. And rightly so. But the fact is, we do not understand this hypocrisy. We don't understand the deep drivers behind this hypocrisy and all forms of hypocrisy because this is what this is about. But it's terrible that we don't understand it because if we don't understand it, then we remain vulnerable to it. This is why we need to confront the terrible truth here that knowledge of the good cannot deal with the problem of evil in the human heart. But being honest about that is almost impossible. 
because it is death. It is death to see this dark truth, to face this truth that we... It is, it is death. It is the knowledge that we are deeply and horribly lost, divided against ourselves, unable to do what we believe in. Knowledge of the good becomes a torture a standing indictment upon us, a pronouncement of judgment, that is a terrible thing to acknowledge. And so, actually, we hide from it. We obscure it and we look elsewhere. It's too painful to acknowledge this truth about ourselves. Actually, there's only one thing that can free us to name this truth, the truth about sin in the ways this passage does and that we need to. There's only one thing, and that is... The grace of God. The grace of God. Thanks be to God, says Paul in verse 25. Did you see it there? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul can't hold this cry of thanksgiving back. He actually still has his concluding statement of the problem uh, he has been describing to write in verse 25. Um, But he can't hold this, this cry of thanksgiving back anymore because he couldn't have got to this point without it. Thank God, he says. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for a way out of this problem, for an end to this horror. Thank God that in Jesus there is rescue from this death. Thank God. God's grace in Jesus, you see, frees us to be honest about how lost we really were. Uh, When you're in the midst of trouble, if you're lost at sea or lost in the bush... You have to keep fooling yourself about your situation, about how bad it really is, because otherwise you just despair. But when the rescue has come, then you can be honest about how lost you really were. That's what we see here. And this, I think, explains also why many Christians are so eager to see their own experience reflected in this passage. Because God's grace has allowed us to be honest about our sin. The knowledge that there is forgiveness means we don't need to hide anymore. And there's something good about that. Yet there is also a danger because Paul's aim here is not to describe what it is to be a Christian, but to describe what it is to be a slave to sin under law. There will doubtless still be moments that feel a bit like this in the Christian life. Yet we should be very wary of taking our direction from here, of thinking this is how it's meant to be. As we'll see over the next weeks as we look at chapter 8, the Holy Spirit's work is precisely to overcome the division and hopelessness we see here. Okay, let me conclude what has been a long and difficult sermon. I bet you got a shock if you came to church this evening expecting inspiration and warm feelings. We'll return to our regular program next week. (laughs) Let me conclude just by saying this. Please do not fool yourself about the seriousness of the problem of sin. We are experts today at fooling ourselves about this. In particular, we tell ourselves that if only people had better information, 
and education. If only they could be taught the right values, then the world would be so much better. Its problems would be solved. Human beings are not so bad. We say to ourselves, bad people are just ignorant. Uh, That's not a new thought, by the way. As far back as Plato, people have earnestly believed that people do not knowingly do what is bad for them. They They just misunderstand. But bad people are not just ignorant. They may indeed be ignorant. We all are ignorant in various ways, but they are not bad only because of that. And the reason we know this is because the people who were the least ignorant from one perspective, the people of Israel, who were given God's law, his wonderful, holy, just disclosure of the good, they did not cease to be bad. Indeed, as Paul's testimony makes clear, they simply became bad in new and more troubling ways. The human heart, your heart and my heart, has a deep corruption which cannot be dealt with merely by enlightenment. Sin has entered into us like a virus devouring its host. To underestimate it would be as foolish as a person who has contracted Ebola imagining that they just need a few Panadol and some bed rest. No, our problem is big and deep. Sin has got hold of us deeply. But there is a solution. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is Jesus Christ who entered into our situation and took upon himself our body of death, who died in our place so that we could be brought back to life. Thank God. I hope you'll be with us as we rejoice in this truth more and more deeply over the next weeks. But even more than that, I hope you will not go away tonight from here without saying this prayer for yourself. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, give us the faith in your grace to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, to not hide from the truth about sin so that we would not be fooled but would know how much we need you and be able to rejoice in what he has done for us. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.